With the latest agriculture news from across the state and nation, it's time for the AgNet News Hour from AgNet West. Here's your host, Danielle Leal. Hey everyone, Danielle Leal here, and thanks for getting your agriculture news with me today. Despite challenging times, almond farmers aren't skimping on bees. California almond growers are keeping up with pollinating their trees this season. After a bruising year of lower earnings, crop losses, and soaring production costs for growers, there still appears to be plenty of work for beekeepers who rent their hives to pollinate crops and whose insects rely on blossoming almond trees as a source of pollen to build their colonies. State almond acreage is down for the first time in 25 years. But beekeepers say a surplus of bees at the season's start has evaporated and demand for bees is robust again. That was today's California Farm Bureau Food and Farm News Report, and now let's get into today's show headlines. Backups at the Ports The pandemic emphasized the stressors already at busy ports shipping out American agricultural goods. Richard Montoyan with American Pistachio Grower shares a statistic contributing to those holdups. And this is not my data. This comes from the Ag uh, Transportation Coalition that shows that worldwide um, the amount of time it takes to unload a container off of a ship is about 26 seconds. But in L.A. and Long Beach, that time is 42 seconds, almost double. So if it takes double the amount of time and you have all these ships that are out there waiting, um, that it has a tremendous uh, impact on the availability of uh, both containers, cargo space, and uh, just the ability to move things efficiently. And now here's Brian German with more Agriculture News. Researchers are looking for more data points to more accurately track chill accumulation in pistachio trees and how it impacts development. Tree breeder and associate professor at UC Davis, Pat Brown said they can't definitively say one of the three existing models for measuring chill is better than the others, which is why they're looking further into how trees respond to chill conditions. You know, basically, we've developed a very simple assay where we're cutting dormant sticks from trees throughout the winter, giving them water, light, and heat in a greenhouse, and seeing how long it takes them to wake up. And so the whole idea here is that we can get more data from every year than if we were just seeing when they wake up in the spring. And we're hoping that with more data, we can start to distinguish between these three models, see which one is better, and or maybe even come up with something better than the three we already have. The strengthening organic enforcement rule has been celebrated by industry members and the additional requirements are going to be coming into effect in the year ahead. Certification Director for Oregon Tilth, Connie Carr, said that after the rule becomes effective on March 20th, organic industry members affected by the new requirements will be on the clock for compliance. There will be a one-year implementation from that final day. So we have one year. So all of these requirements will kind of come out with landing in this big group of here's the new SOE standard. And all of those changes will need to be implemented within one year. So that would mean certifiers need to communicate to their operations what those changes and how they may affect them. You know, we really encourage all of our operations to review them themselves and lay out a plan to make sure that they are able to comply with any changes that impact them within that one year time. I'm Brian German for Agnet West Radio Network. Thanks, Brian. And in more ag news, U.S. organic cropland and farms. Governor Gavin Newsom is considering pushing the state of California to increase its organic farming to 30 percent of all agriculture production by 2030. 
USDA's economic researcher Sharon Razab Skorbansky looks at the latest National Agriculture Statistics Service organic study and its findings about cropland and farms. The United States is one of the top producers of organic products globally, but according to the 2017 Census of Agriculture, organic farming systems were used on less than 1% of total cropland and total pasture and rangeland. The National Agricultural Statistics Service, or NAS, organic surveys, the last one was released this December, and it was a census of all known organic and transitioning operations with production in 2021. And what the survey found is that organic land decreased by 11%, 4.9 million acres, and that was driven by a decrease in organic pasture land to 1.3 million acres. It can mostly be explained by decreases in states with high concentration, which are not disclosed by NAS, although there was also a decrease of about 100,000 acres in California, which is the state with the highest amount of pasture land. There was also an increase in cropland by 3% to 3.6 million acres, as well as an increase in the number of certified organic farms. You're listening to Agnet News Hour by Agnet West. I'm your host, Daniel Leo. We'll be right back in just a moment with more agriculture news. Farm employers' labor service compliance posters could save you thousands of dollars. Did you know that California lawmakers can be fined as much as $13,000 in government penalties if they don't have all the required employee and farm labor information posted for their workers? Avoid costly penalties and give yourself peace of mind knowing you are in full compliance with Fells posters. At only $175, this full set of laminated weatherproof posters eliminates the risk. Order yours at fels.net. Welcome back to the Agnet News Hour by Agnet West. I'm your host, Daniel Leal, tossing it right on over to Sabrina Halverson with today's National Spotlight. In today's National Spotlight, the Specialty Crop Farm Bill Alliance has set its priorities for the 2023 Farm Bill. Among them, the Technical Assistance for Specialty Crops program, which funds projects that address sanitary, phytosanitary, and technical barriers that prevent or threaten the export of U.S. specialty crops. Robert Gunther, Chief Public Policy Officer at International Fresh Produce Association and Secretary of the Specialty Crop Farm Bill Alliance, explains. Yeah, we think it's critical that it maintains its uniqueness for specialty crops. Uh, This program, again, was one of the original programs that was passed in the 2002 Farm Bill that has been built up over those over since that since that last since the 2002 farm bill to really bring that assistance that's needed to break down potential sanitary phytosanitary pest and disease uh, barriers that that are impacted by increasing by bringing more access or, or for specialty crops in particular. So it's not a big program; it's nine million dollars or so. Uh, but we do think that's one of the important recommendations we made is maintain its uniqueness for specialty crops, and we'll continue to push for that in, in this farm bill as well. I also talked with Gunther about other programs. Just some things that we have galvanized around in terms of, of sharing with, with Congress. And, you know, for instance, I mean, we represent uh, basically 44% of the farm gate value of all crops in, in the U.S., uh, and then most recently, uh, my group, the National Fresh Produce Association, did an economic impact study. And then the product with the fresh produce and floor industry alone represents 2.2 million jobs in the U.S. in all 50 states and about 120, over $120 billion of labor income in the United States economy. So we think we have an important message to tell Congress that we are at the table. We want to be recognized. We want to continue to be recognized. It's taken a while for us to be where we are today where our footprint, you know, 20, 30 years ago, you know, our industries didn't even want to talk about the farm bill. And now, you know, since about 2002, 2004, 
as we develop this new co this coalition, um, we've really started to make a strong imprint on programs that uh, that help our industry become more competitive, both domestically and globally. So that is why you know we're not a monolithic type, you know, single crop uh, type of, of commodity. Uh, we are 300 plus different commodities that are grown here in the United States. So not there's not going to be one program or one size fits all to our, our approach. That is why in this farm bill, you know, we cover our recommendations cover over eight titles of the farm bill. Uh, to what you mentioned, you know, from from the nutrition programs to rural development to trade title, obviously the horticulture title uh, research, as I mentioned before. Uh, you know, we cover a number of different titles that that we need to have, or because our our industry is so diverse, we need as many tool, tools in the toolbox that we can that that can help address the many challenges we that our industry faces, not just on a commodity level, but a local level, regional level, state level. You know, I always used to say, you know, a citrus grower in California, their tools may be totally different than a citrus grower in Florida or Texas. So we have to create a, 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 a like I said, a toolbox, a portfolio of different programs that, that people can tap, that our members can tap into that, that allows them to modify or to tailor the, these, these USDA federal programs um, uh, to help their companies, their farms be more, uh, uh, you know, compete and modernize where they can. You can hear more of my interview with Gunther by heading to our website on Saturday and checking out our new Agnet Weekly podcast. This week is all about specialty crops and the farm bill. Again, you can find it at agnetwest.com. That's today's National Spotlight. I'm Sabrina Halverson for Agnet West. Thanks, Sabrina. And now for today's Livestock Report, here's Randall Wiseman. Well, in today's Livestock News, we told you earlier this week that Brazil's Agriculture and Livestock Ministry had confirmed in one of their northern states, mad cow disease. And due to that, the National Cattlemen's Beef Association is calling on Secretary of Agriculture Tom Vilsack to immediately halt U.S. beef imports from Brazil. That announcement came as Brazil reported an atypical case of the BSE to the World Animal Organization for Animal Health last week. The report indicates 35 days have elapsed between when the case was first identified and the date it was actually confirmed. NCBA President Todd Wilkinson said, We've seen Brazil repeatedly fail to meet the 24-hour requirement for reporting of animal diseases. And we expect USDA to keep the border closed to Brazil until they can demonstrate that they are willing and able to play both the trade rules by that govern all other nations. NCBA sent a letter to USDA demanding immediate action on the issue. They also support bipartisan Senate legislation to suspend Brazilian beef imports pending a review of Brazil's standards. Well, a group of U.S. Senators are looking to reform agricultural checkoff programs. The effort, spearheaded by Republican Senator Mike Lee of Utah, have reintroduced the Opportunities for Fairness in Farming Act. Checkoffs, of course, are mandatory they are by the Department of Agriculture. Uh, fee is assessed on a per-unit basis that funds boards designed to promote the commodity as a whole. Now, the legislation was met with mixed reviews, as you can imagine. RCAF USA CEO Bill Bullard said the decades-old beef checkoff program is ill-suited to meet the needs of today's cattle farmers and ranchers. But... National Cattlemen's Beef Association responded to the legislation, saying in 2021, cattle producers overwhelmingly denied a referendum to end the checkoff. The legislation, among other things, would also prohibit checkoff programs from contracting with any organization that lobbies on agricultural policy. 
And the 2023 World Pork Expo will be returning to the Iowa State Fairgrounds in Des Moines, Iowa this year. The event will be held June 7th through 9th. This year will mark the 35th anniversary of the annual event. It'll focus on education, innovation, and networking within the pork industry. National Pork Producers Council Board President Terry Walter said, We're looking forward to celebrating the event's history while continuing to look ahead at the progress the industry continues to make. Now, the event has grown significantly over the last three and a half decades to become the world's largest pork-specific trade show. Last year, more than 10,000 pork producers and ag professionals representing over 400 companies worldwide took part in the event. This year's event is expected to draw even more industry insiders to the more than 300,000 square feet of exhibit space. Registration information will soon be available on worldport.org for those who plan to attend. But again, Worldport Expo will be in Iowa again June 7th through 9. I'm Randall Wiseman for Agnet Wild. You're listening to Agnet News Hour by Agnet West. I'm your host, Danielle Leo. We'll be right back in just a moment with more agriculture news. How are GMO plants made? First, scientists look for a desired trait in a plant, animal, or even bacteria. It could be a trait like resistance to drought, insects, or viruses. Then they copy the gene that contains that trait and insert it into the DNA of the plant they want to improve. Scientists then grow that plant to see if it adopts the desired trait. Feed your mind with more GMO facts on FDA's website. You've been listening to the Agnet News Hour by Agnet West. I'm your host, Danielle Leal. Welcome back. We've got more of the day's agriculture news right now. Chicken has become the nation's most available meat source. That's coming up on This Land of Hours. The supply of chicken available to eat in the United States continues to outpace beef, according to new food availability data from the USDA's Economic Research Service. In 2021, 68.1 pounds of chicken per person were available for human consumption on a boneless, edible basis, compared with 56.2 pounds of beef. The availability of chicken began to increase in the 1940s, overtaking pork availability in 1996 and surpassing beef in 2010 to become the meat most available for U.S. consumption. Since 1980, U.S. chicken availability per person has more than doubled from 32.7 pounds. There were 47.5 pounds of pork available in 2021 after fluctuating between 42.4 and 49.9 pounds per person over the last four decades, that according to USDA. Per-person fish and shellfish availability data are only available through 2019, when 19.1 pounds were available per person in the United States, up from the low of 8 pounds in 1943. I'm Sabrina Halverson for Agnet West. This is the Agricultural Law and Tax Report. I'm Roger McOwen. Some states issued taxpayers special refunds or rebates during 2022. Normally, the receipt of a state tax refund is considered taxable income if you itemized in the previous year. But are they taxable if you don't itemize? Are state tax refunds or rebates taxable? IRS recently said taxpayers in many states will not need to report state tax refunds on the 2022 returns. For taxpayers in states where the refunds were deemed general welfare and disaster payments, the payments aren't taxable. That's California, Colorado, Connecticut, Delaware, Florida, Hawaii, Idaho, Illinois, Indiana, Maine, New Jersey, New Mexico, New York, Oregon, Pennsylvania, and Rhode Island. 
For those in Georgia, South Carolina, and Virginia, the refunds are also not taxable, but only if the taxpayer claimed the standard deduction or itemized deductions and did not receive a tax benefit, for instance, due to the state and local tax cap. Illinois and New York issued multiple payments, one of which was an income tax refund and one that was a disaster payment. For example, Illinois issued a flat amount per individual claimed on the return as a disaster payment and then issued a property tax rebate based on taxes paid. That will complicate the tax reporting on the 2022 return. If you received a state tax refund, make sure you report it correctly on your 2022 return. This has been the Agricultural Law and Tax Report. I'm Roger McOwen. The Plate Panel at this year's USDA Agricultural Outlook Forum focused on the theme of improved prosperity for rural America. As Rural Development Undersecretary Social Torres Small pointed out, Regarding improved and expanded opportunities for ag producers and rural business owners and communities. We can support the folks who've been working so hard and answering our call to produce more efficiently by investing in the solutions that they're already forging on the ground. Some of that focus is on the opportunities created through development of climate smart commodities and markets for such. John Piatti of the American Farmland Trust and Christine Morgan of the Soil Health Institute shared their thoughts on how climate-smart commodities create value and economic opportunities. One of the reasons these climate-smart commodity projects are so important is they are being innovative in creating new tools and new markets that will allow for diversification. It's a game changer. We think that makes a very strong market for someone to be able to say, okay, here is where my soil is today. This is how good it can get. Now, as I implement these practices, what are those changes and what do they mean to the market? Organic agriculture has long been a value-added proposition for producers and remains so as more growers switch. Maryland producer Ann Sutton, better known as Farmer Gale, says an important holistic approach to organic that she and other farmers take benefit both natural resources and local economies. Construct a plan that would allow us to put this land into production, but put it into production in such a way that we can really get the soil to a point where it can grow food for our community that would not just mass produce food, but also enrich the community in a way that it would help to sustain our environment as a whole. Paul Neubauer is a Montana rancher. He notes two areas where rural economies can see greater opportunities, both traditional in several aspects in rural America. One is the cooperative business model, which is still a significant part of economic development in a community or region. The other, and one that in cases fits the cooperative model, is local and regional, small and mid-sized, meat processing facilities the development of which is being encouraged by federal and state leaders due to recent supply chain disruptions. There was a time in the past where rural communities had slaughterhouses and butcher shops that were available and those were viable businesses and there is a way to get back to that or to something similar to it. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. You're listening to Agnet News Hour by Agnet West. I'm your host, Daniel Leo. We'll be right back in just a moment with more agriculture news. 
Farm Employers Labor Service Compliance posters could save you thousands of dollars. Did you know that California lawmakers can be fined as much as $13,000 in government penalties if they don't have all the required employee and farm labor information posted for their workers? Avoid costly penalties and give yourself peace of mind knowing you are in full compliance with Fells posters. At only $175, this full set of laminated weatherproof posters eliminates the risk. Order yours at FELS.net. Welcome back to the Agnet News Hour by Agnet West, providing you with statewide agriculture news daily. I'm your host, Danielle Leal. Now let's listen in to more featured segments. The U.S. drought map has greatly improved east of the Mississippi River. Major issues remain in the Western Belt and Plains. I'm Mark Oppold. This is the Bottom Line Report for Friday, March 3rd, brought to you by AgriLiquid. What a difference in the U.S. drought map since New Year's. The eastern half of the country is now free of drought, save some areas of Florida. However, from Nebraska to Texas, severe and extreme drought remains, even with recent rain and snow events. We would expect in that southern belt that the early planting window would open even earlier than normal this year, with that near-perfect weather pattern continuing. Elsewhere, extension of the Ukraine-Black Sea Grain Agreement, set to expire the 18th, looks like it could come down to the wire. Russia is demanding that some restrictions on their ag exports be part of the deal. AgriLiquid says apply less, but expect more. AgriLiquid can help you increase your corn and soybean yields this season without increasing input expenses. Learn more at agriliquid.com. Three days in a row this week, April lean hogs traded below our support level of 84.55, but each day managed to close above that. So watch 85.55 at the close today. I'm Mark Oppold, wishing you a profitable day and a profitable week ahead. Good day, everybody. Albert J., the Untamed Chef for Agnet West. Welcome to the California Kitchen, where you can learn how to cook from an award-winning chef in under three minutes or less. I'm your host with the most. Let's get untamed. So my recipe today, we're having some really awesome fun right now uh, with tomatoes. Now, what I like about these tomatoes in particular, though tomato season isn't really in full effect quite yet, not at least everywhere, these are tomatoes that we probably have in our cupboards. So it's not a bad idea sometimes to wonder what else can we do with these tomatoes. So this is a really awesome uh, version of a ratatouille pasta that I think you're really, really going to appreciate and love. And it's very, very simple. All we're going to need is a regular size can, which is usually about 10 good size San Marzano uh, tomatoes. Now, San Marzano tomatoes come from Italy and they are a specialty ingredient but if you do not have them at all in your cupboard, you can always pick some up. And I promise you, they're so, so worth it. The uh, San Marzano tomatoes are usually with a little bit of basil, olive oil, and a little bit of garlic. It kind of just sits there and it marinates inside of the can. And it makes for something really beautiful. Now, what I like to do is take my San Marzano tomatoes. And I like to take the tomatoes out individually. And I like to give them a squeeze to take out any extra moisture mm-hmm. that's inside of the tomato. And then we'll put them back with the sauce they're originally in inside of a regular size can. Now, it's very simple. With the regular size can, usually those cans are about a good uh, 16 ounce can. And it's not a big deal at all whatsoever. But I promise you, the more San Marzano tomatoes you have, the better this recipe is really going to be. Because all we're going to do next is I'm going to add to this 
a quarter cup of sun-dried tomatoes and I'm going to put this on my stovetop and I'm going to just let this kind of heat up. I'm not going to really let it cook. I'm going to add to this as well a quarter cup of shallots. And last but definitely uh, not least, we're going to add in uh, two tablespoons of crispy garlic. If you're not using crispy garlic, which would be dehydrated garlic, you can do one tablespoon of fresh garlic and just let this come uh, to a nice little simmer here. Very simply, I'm going to blend this all together and I'm going to hit this as well with a quarter cup of heavy cream. And I'm also going to have some fresh Parmigiano-Reggiano that I'm just going to kind of put over the top of this when we finish this off. And now this is the sauce for making a beautiful ratatouille. All I would do is, is add very simply some zucchini, some broken neck squash, and some eggplant. And what I usually like to do is about four ounces of each. And I like to just put this on the bottom of a skillet. And very, very simply, I'm going to pour this sauce right over the top of it. And if I want to pair this with some fresh pasta, that's never an issue whatsoever. But always use a good egg noodle pasta for this so you can taste the full essence of the flavor of everything that we're building up right here. Finish with a little bit of salt and pepper and enjoy this beautiful, beautiful, beautiful dish. I'm Albert J. Hernandez. You all know me as the Untamed Chef for Agnet West. The COVID pandemic brought more than just sickness and a big change in lifestyles. It brought a huge increase in phone and internet scams. Most everybody was stuck at home and the scammers were taking advantage. In 2020, before COVID really got going, Americans lost just under $20 billion to scammers. That was bad enough. But in 2021, the money lost shot up to about $30 billion. The Federal Trade Commission estimates that last year, four out of five Americans lost money to scammers. And unfortunately, older adults are, as a whole are a particularly favorite target. They're more likely to listen. They are often more trusting and they're more easily caught off guard. That's Barbara Stockebrand. She's an extension educator, Kansas State University. But there's another reason that older folks are top targets. It's because they tend to have more assets to steal. That's why many young people report losing some money to phone and online scammers, but actual money lost much greater among Americans 65 and older. But Barbara says it's hard to put a figure on that because older people are less likely to report being scammed partly because they're embarrassed that they were taken in in the first place. They fear they will be seen as not being able to handle their financial and banking processes anymore, possibly with a potential loss of control and independence. Fear that their actions may isolate them even more from family or even their familiar environments, and maybe even fear that they may be placed in a nursing home. And many of us older folks may not remember all of the details of what exactly happened and how they were scammed. So rather than lose control over their affairs, older adults may hide this type of abuse. And of course... And the predators are counting on uh, that, and they're counting on those older adults to remain silent. And the scammers have several scenarios targeted to older potential victims, for example. Someone calling from Social Security, needing your personal information or confirming that. Or the IRS uh, with threats of arrest, possibly, if outstanding taxes aren't paid. There may be a call or an email. Um, a friend or a grandchild is in trouble and in need of money. 
immediately. Uh-huh. Yes, immediately. That's one clue that it's a scam when they say you need to send money now. Other warning signs of a scam? Well, if it comes online or in an email. It may include bad grammar or incorrect spelling, which is a good sign. It may be coming from another country. Even though the address or the caller ID will show a number with a familiar area code or zip code. Also, the message may have a link or links for you to click on. Don't do it because those can install software where the scammer may be able to gain access to your computer and then maybe through your computer to other possible computers of friends and family. For a lot more tips on scams, go online to federaltradecommission.gov, federaltradecommission.gov. That's no scam. This is Gary Crawford reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture. You're listening to Agnet News Hour by Agnet West. I'm your host, Daniel Leo. We'll be right back in just a moment with more agriculture news. What GMO crops are grown and sold in the U.S.? Well, there's corn, like me, soybeans, canola, sugar beets, and cotton. Typically, we're ingredients in certain foods. GMO alfalfa, corn, soybeans, canola, and cotton are used as animal food. And while you won't find many GMOs in the produce section, there are versions of GMO apple, summer squash, potato, and papaya in a few markets. Feed your mind with more GMO knowledge on FDA's website. You've been listening to the Agnet News Hour by Agnet West. I'm your host, Daniel Leal. Welcome back. We've got more of the day's agriculture news right now. In this week's California Chill Hour report, brought to you by Dormex. Wake up your buds with Dormex. Continuing our conversation with Orchard Systems Advisor for Yolo, Solano, and Sacramento Counties, Kat Jarvis-Sheehan, highlighting overall trends in winter chill accumulation in California orchards. And now, Kat, you've explained that over the past 50 years or so, winters are becoming warmer, but it's not a constant one record-breaking warm winter after another. It's been more of a steady incremental climb to more frequent warmer-than-average winters, right? Yeah, you know, it's been um, some years we're still having normal chill years, but we're often having warmer winters than usual. And we're having uh, we're trending towards having even lower chill winters than we've had in the past. You know, historically, you go back in the record, we would have a low chill winter that would be disruptive to production about every 20 years. And we've had at least two, arguably three in the last decade. So it's not, you know, this year, actually, uh, winter chill is pretty good. So that's not to say that every winter has been a low chill winter, but we're getting more of them and they're coming more often. And that's in line with something you noted in a recent presentation you gave in that even though there's a trend towards overall warmer winters, there's still years with adequate chill. So maybe it's adding a little bit more variability in between winters from good chill winters and winters that trees aren't quite getting what they need. And you've been working on a project to maybe provide growers some help to overcome some of those challenges with dormancy breaking materials like Dormex, right? Yeah, yeah. So there's inherent variability, as there always has been in the past. But if you look at the trend, you know, there's still a a trend upwards. So the floor of where that variability, you know, the lowest of the lows is picking up a little higher. And until recently, we haven't had a lot of tools in the toolbox, which is why with the funding from the Walnut Board and now CDFA, we've been looking at different dormancy breaking treatments to help encourage trees along to wake up in the spring when they haven't gotten enough winter chill. 
Now, while those type of dormancy breaking treatments will help growers now, looking ahead with the warming winter trends, you had also noted in your presentation that some varieties might not be appropriate in the Central Valley over the next 30 or 40 years. Yeah, you know, we've we've got the varieties in the ground that we have now, and the breeding program is working hard to come up with varieties that still have, you know, the traits that we like about Chandler of uh, good color, stays light for a long time in the field and in processing and on the shelf, you know, processes well, blah, 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 but with a lower chilling requirement. And then it's taking some time to develop that sort of, you know, Goldilocks variety that has all these things that we really love. So in the meantime, in the next five, 10 years, people are probably still going to be planting a lot of Chandler, other stuff that's already on the shelf. So we have these tools now to help with those varieties while breeders are looking at other varieties to start planting 10, 15 years from now. And information from the UC Davis Chill Calculator shows that as of March 2nd, the Durham Simmons Station has logged 81.7 portions under the dynamic model with 1,447 hours below 45 degrees. The station in Manteca has registered 79.5 portions with 1,316 hours. There have been 1,499 hours in Merced with 79.8 cumulative portions. In five points, there have been 1,384 chill hours equating to 75.2 portions. Finally, the Simma Station in Shafter has registered 75.6 portions with 1,340 hours. And this has been the California Chill Hour Report brought to you by Dormex. Thanks, Brian, and stay tuned as we'll have more of the day's agriculture news and farm features here on the Agnet News Hour. Don't forget if you've missed any of our morning shows or if you simply need to catch the news at a different time, you can always subscribe to our podcast and at Statewide Agriculture News at your convenience. All you have to do is search our name of Agnet West on your favorite podcast downloading app. That's Agnet West. It's available on both Apple and Android devices. Farm Employers Labor Service Compliance Posters could save you thousands of dollars. Did you know that California lawmakers can be fined as much as $13,000 in government penalties if they don't have all the required employee and farm labor information posted for their workers? Avoid costly penalties and give yourself peace of mind knowing you are in full compliance with Fells Posters. At only $175, this full set of laminated weatherproof posters eliminates the risk. Order yours at FELS.net. You've been listening to the Agnet News Hour by Agnet West. I'm your host, Daniel Leal. Welcome back. We've got more of the day's agriculture news right now. I'm Frankie Lopez, and I'm the outside sales rep for Southern Ag. Frankie, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me today here at the grounds of the World Ag Expo, the International Agri Center 2023, and we're talking all about your product, which was one of the award winners of the Top 10 New Product competition. Um, what are you showcasing today? So today, or this week, we showcased our uh, seed spider made by Green Tech Robotics. And this is a machine that's been out for quite a while already. But what Seed Spider ended up doing, or Green Tech, ended up completely renovating their whole system in regards to going from a physical controller now to an app-based system. So it really fac- facilitates the whole mathematical terms on doing all the back-end math to be able to get the proper rate and, and uh, coverage for your seed all done in the app. And the really thing about this is that now you're able to input all your constants on here and the system automatically gets that specific target rate what you're supposed to get at per your variety of seed. The industry, the agriculture industry is so big and it's ever evolving. 
and so were the needs of our growers and producers. What was the need that you guys saw that made this product and is that need being served? Yeah, it's definitely being served and I think what really uh, came down to was uh, doing, uh, getting the proper rate out, sometimes doing the math end of it, physical math, and doing the long form really at the very end. It could have been a couple of missed numbers or overcalculated numbers, but at the end they ended up seeing within their population that their target wasn't met or undermet or, or overachieved. So I think with this, what really came across with the collaboration was being that um, made it a whole lot simpler for the farmer end, especially uh, within the industry where you have a bunch of different people within a certain department and uh, going each and every Every way, I think it simplified it a lot by able to go in and do a system like this, where you just input the, uh, the numbers and you kind of forget about it, and you just go. If, if that makes any sense, it does. And now, I like to round out our conversations with looking toward the future. So, what do you see? I'm sure you guys got some long-term goals. Let's say the next five years. What do you see for the future of um, the collaboration, your product, and how it fits in with the future of agriculture? Yeah, I think what it really comes down to is just the simplicity and the uh, automation of it. Uh, the simpler it is, the easier it gets uh, to get done. We need to get done right out in the field. Um, you know, we're really expecting some high hope for this uh, type of system, and especially we've got a really good leads and, and clients that have the existing old system wanting to upgrade already as it is. One, it simplifies the whole planting of it, but it also simplifies the data collection of it. So one thing about this specifically, not to overextend my, my comment, but it's able to go ahead and record all your data so you have all that backtracking that you need for all your, your uh, production on there. So I think that's really the big uh, neat point on it. Automation has been a big theme, uh, not only in the top 10 new product winners, but across the board here at the World Ag Expo. If folks want to gather more information on this and how they can maybe use it on their operation, or maybe if they're just interested in learning more, where can they go to gather that information? Yeah, they could either visit us physically, we're in the Salinas Valley um, at our shop, or they could go and give us a call or even email us or go on our website. We definitely have an array of information on there from one shooters to whole pamphlets, videos that definitely could go and learn and find out more and if not we'd be happy to go out on the farm and showcase them there thank you so much a cover cropping in conventional orchards and vineyards area tour is coming up next week the uc sustainable agriculture research and education program will be hosting the tours in arbuckle on wednesday march 8th beginning at one in the afternoon participating farms include pacific gold agriculture and matchbook vineyards Farm operators, researchers, and agricultural professionals will be highlighting strategies for integrating cover crops into orchards and vineyards and impacts of cover cropping on soil and water balance. Discussion, demonstrations, and presentations will also be covering frost risk protection and prevention and funding sources for growing cover crops. Some of the guest speakers include personnel from Project APISM, UC Davis, and UC A&R. More information on the cover cropping tours is available on the upcoming events page at agnetwest.com. I'm Brian German for Agnet West Radio Network. Thanks, Brian. And in more ag news, weather and labor continue to challenge railways. Recent winter weather and labor availability is impacting railway deliveries of grain cars. Here's Michael Clements with the report. One of the main metrics for railway service quality is unfilled grain car orders, the number of cars a shipper ordered but didn't receive. Danny Munch, American Farm Bureau Federation economist, says the data shows shippers are waiting a long time to get the grain cars they need. So far in 2023, average weekly unfilled grain car orders, one or more days overdue, have numbered over 16,000 a week. That's up 54% from last quarter and 54% the same magnitude from quarter one of last year. Of those record unfilled orders, 
visitors one or more days overdue. Almost 75% remain 11 or more days overdue. Munch says winter weather is the biggest challenge currently. Most of the issues we're seeing in unfilled orders are concentrated in the upper Midwest in states like North Dakota and Minnesota. The region has faced intense snowstorms in the first part of the year, which makes moving those cars more difficult. Those weather events are usually more short term, and we hope those subside as spring comes along. Munch adds labor is another hurdle for railways. Most railroads are still below pre-pandemic employment levels by about 3 to 5 percent, which makes it difficult for them to increase capacity. Luckily, though, those numbers are still getting better, still better than the 10 percent below that they were about a year ago. And in order to improve service quality, they really need to be fully staffed and growing. Read more on the Market Intel page at FB.org. Michael Clements, Washington. Farm Bill Conservation Program and Recent Implementation USDA farm and forestry officials explained to lawmakers earlier this week how 2018 Farm Bill programs have provided various conservation opportunities. USDA's Rod Bain has the report now. On Capitol Hill Wednesday... Testimony from USDA officials on the importance of farm and forest conservation in a farm bill and implementation of 2018 Farm Bill Conservation and Forestry Programs. To maximize new and innovative ideas, we saw public feedback through a request for information on how to maximize and quantify climate mitigation benefits, streamline and improve program delivery to increase efficiencies and expand program access for producers. At the direction of the Secretary, we've prioritized increasing access to CRP, strengthening climate benefits of the program, and now have the program on an upward trajectory of enrollment. The tools in the Farm Bill play a pivotal role in reducing wildfire threats and promoting resilience in our forests. We need management options that remove barriers and promote shared stewardship and cross-boundary work. Perspectives shared by Natural Resources Conservation Service Chief Terry Cosby, Farm Service Agency Administrator Zach Ducheneau, and U.S. Forest Service Associate Chief Angela Colbert. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. Thanks, Rod. Reporting for Agnet West Radio Network, I'm Danielle Lee. To get more information on the topics you heard today, visit Agnet West online at agnetwest.com. You can also stay connected by following us on our social media at Agnet West on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can also find our broadcast team of Danielle Leal, Brian German, and Sabrina Halvertson on Facebook and Twitter. Thank you for listening to the Agnet News Hour from Agnet West. Agnet West Radio Network, your primary choice for agriculture news.